Hi, it's Mark Weiss. I was recently interviewed by Christine Roberts for a podcast that appears on her E for Arissa blog. Here's the interview. podcast. My name is Christine Roberts and I author the blog E for Erisa at www.eforerisa.com. And today I have the pleasure of um, interviewing uh, Mark Weiss. And um, Mark is uh, the principal at Advisory Law Group with offices in Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, and now Dallas. Good morning, Mark. Hi, Christine. Thank you very much. Uh, I do have to point out only because there is a um, rather strange State Bar of Texas rule, and that is that Advisory Law Group in Texas is going to be doing business as the Mark F. Weiss Law Firm. Now, when I first learned that I couldn't use a trade name in Texas, you know, it bothered me a bit since I've devoted a lot of attention to building up my trade name advisory law group, but I do like my own name, so I think I'm going to learn quickly to enjoy the Texas rules. And of course, all the points we're going to cover are of general information and don't constitute legal advice to any of our listeners. So, um, Mark, um, one of the uh, one of the the issues with regard to the Affordable Care Act and medical practices and and the provision of medical care in the U.S. that is that has emerged uh, since the law was passed in 2010 is um, the notion that it is going to consolidate healthcare providers and consolidate the healthcare market. Can you explain why that's the case? Well, I think this is the case for for several reasons. Uh, First, uh, from the from the physician standpoint, one of the most important aspects of the act uh, is the notion of an accountable care organization, or uh, in the trade, an ACO. Uh, an ACO, uh, in essence, is an um, an affiliation of providers, uh, generally inclu- including providers and a hospital. Uh, which are to organize with the notion of being able to uh, produce higher quality care uh, more efficiently, uh, you know, better outcomes um, at, a, at a lower cost. Uh, whether that can all be accomplished is another question, but that's basically the notion of, of an ACO. Now, because these entities are expensive to set up, uh, the 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 market impact has been that hospitals are in the driver's seat in terms of establishing accountable care organizations. And they've, they've, these are basically payment mechanisms, mechanisms by which Medicare money, and if, if things continue in this, in this direction, uh, private payer money, in other words, insurance money, uh, will flow, in essence, into a pot controlled by the ACO, which would then be sprinkled down to the various providers. So hospitals have reacted to this as an opportunity, an opportunity to more tightly, they would say, align with physicians, meaning employ more physicians, or in states like California, where hospitals, for the most part, can't directly employ physicians, establishing foundations and captive medical groups that can employ physicians. So, so one thing we see in this consolidation is number one, it's becoming sort of hospital centric. The hospital is in the sort of controlling position. 
and they've then reached out to either employ or more tightly contract with physicians. So we see a significantly larger percentage of new doctors, once finishing their, their training, going into hospital employment. And we see a significant number of uh, experienced physicians deciding that they don't want to um, uh, be in traditional private practice any longer. In other words, maintain their own offices or be in smaller partnerships or sometimes larger partnerships. And we see them either giving up practice in that setting and becoming hospital employees or, in some cases, uh, selling their practice to hospitals or hospital-controlled ventures. And so that's creating a a consolidation of control, uh, and it's increasing uh, the sort of market share of, of referrals to the hospital. So, so one of the reasons that a hospital would want to establish an ACO is simply in order to participate as an ACO and receiving federally funded you know, money. But secondly, if a hospital can control enough physicians in the community, it's it's it is cementing the relationship that is going to lead to referrals to the hospital so that when Mrs. Smith goes to an internist, Mrs. Smith might be referred to a specialist also within the ACO's network. And when Mrs. Smith needs hospitalization, she would come to the hospital, not to some competitor. In some parts of the country, um, this consolidation doesn't present uh, for example, antitrust problems in other parts of the country, like we'll pick Boise, Idaho, where there's an active case involving a hospital which purchased a very large uh, multi-specialty group, uh, antitrust challenges. So there's all kinds of issues here, but it's, it, it's certainly something that is, is interesting. Uh, and for physicians, especially those who are remaining outside of ECOs, it's creating other headaches, and that is uh, will their referrals dry up? So we're seeing a big shift uh, toward hospitals, uh, a big shift away from sort of independent private practice, uh, and there's no real knowing how this is all going to play out. Can, can you address whether uh, the medical home concept is the same thing as an ACO or not the same thing? Because that is a term that is also used in this context. Yeah, the, the, the medical home concept is, is really different. Uh, uh, the, the medical home concept involves uh, placing physicians, uh, let's just say in our example, a, a primary care physician, as the center point for coordinating a patient's medical care. Uh, one of the things that traditionally has been missing in terms of how patients are treated is that while a patient may go to an internist and the internist may then refer the patient to, let's say, uh, a cardiologist who then refers the patient to a cardiac surgeon, uh, no one remains, none of those physicians remains in sort of an, an oversight loop for the patient's overall care. And the notion of a medical home in that example would involve the internist, probably the, the key player there in terms of coordinating care across multiple uh, uh, physicians, acting as 
sort of a, a quarterback or central clearinghouse uh, in order to coordinate that care, to make sure that, say, the same tests aren't being done three times, uh, to make sure uh, that the cardiologist knows about other issues that the patient has, you know, maybe from seeing a nephrologist or from seeing some other specialist. So th- that's, that's a different concept from the concept of a group of physicians who are tightly bound uh, within an ACO, uh, a group of physicians who are probably, if it is an ACO set up, uh, controlled in some fashion or another, fashion or another, but by a hospital. So it, it's it's a very different concept. And you know, I've always wondered, and I could wonder out loud now, uh, why we need the tight alignment of an uh, of an ACO system in order to coordinate care, as opposed to what you describe, you know, as, uh, and what the, the act describes as, as the sort of medical home concept. And, and that's because if, if you hearken back to, to HIPAA, which, which really has to do with the notion of uh, independent providers are going to be accessing electronic medical records in order that independent medical providers can make sort of fully informed um, decisions or fully informed recommendations as to care. And if that's going to go on, then patients should know that their medical data is protected. And so you end up with the privacy rule, the security rule, and, and, and so on. So if, if the microchip revolution has enabled us to share data across in essence, businesses across players in healthcare, and if we have rules to keep them private, why do we need to consolidate in, as the act is is encouraging in the form of accountable care organizations? Why can't the coordination of care aspect be performed at the sort of medical home level? Uh, personally. I believe that most of my physician clients, and I represent mostly physician groups, some extremely entrepreneurial independent physicians, I believe that they would prefer the concept uh, of a medical home uh, in order to coordinate care as opposed to being dictated to, as they would view it, by a hospital. Got but, it. With- you know, that, that's, that's, that's the difference. And, it, and it's sort of... Um- the problem that the Affordable Care Act has had all along, which is that technology has been outpacing it in some regards and and, and forcing changes that the, the act comes along and regulates, and there's not always uh, it's not always a, a smooth transition. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. what I'm hearing you say is that the medical home uh, concept and the electronic medical record uh, technology could create some of the same efficiencies that. Are, are are being you know forced on on the medical um, on the medical field and in the delivery of care instead of you know rearranging whole institutions uh, in a way that that may not improve much or the, the way technology is going to yeah. going to take the practice of medicine on its own. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Can you? Um, I've. Um, uh, you, you've mentioned that for some employers, for large employers, um, they may be in a position to access care you directly and bypass the hospital or ACO um, or ensure um, you know PPO and, and practice um, um, 
group arrangements. Could you explain how that, how that might happen for a large employer? Yeah. Uh, you know, what's, what's sort of interesting, if you look at how healthcare has been funded and, and uh, at the way that hospitals and physicians and, and other providers have, have related uh, to insurers, you know, and or their patients for reimbursement, uh, you know, a, a system developed uh, that is very, um, we would, I suppose you would call it, you know, sort of an insurer centric. In other words, um, hospitals contract with insurance companies. So the insurers go out and develop networks of hospitals. The insurers go out and develop networks of physicians and other providers. And then employers come along and purchase insurance for their employees. Uh, one of the things that some physicians, for example, uh, hospital-based physicians, and in this case, probably anesthesiologists, uh, they're the easiest to use in this example. Uh, in, in some cities uh, where anesthesiologists work at multiple hospitals, it becomes sort of quickly evident to them uh, which surgeons are most efficient, which facilities are uh, 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 produce uh, the best patient outcomes at probably, although they may not have all of the data, the, 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 the most affordable price. Uh, and, and certainly this is data that can come from other sources as well. As well. But, but one of my notions is that uh, why couldn't a very large employer, uh, as opposed to simply shopping for insurance coverage, why couldn't they flip it around? And why couldn't they, in essence, engage uh, physician specialists uh, or an extremely entrepreneurial multi-specialty physician group to help them navigate which hospitals and which physicians in, a, in an, any given area uh, are the best at doing, let's say, you know, heart surgery? And in essence, uh, contracting with those providers or putting together a network of those providers and those facilities for a particular type of, of medical concern. So if we can pick uh, cardiac surgery. And then as opposed to simply buying insurance, approaching insurers and saying, this is the network and this is the hospital we want to use for cardiac surgery. This is the network. These are the doctors we want to use for orthopedic surgery and so on. And in essence, because of their buying power, dictate to the insurer what sort of network they want put together, as opposed to simply having the insurer say, this is the network we have. So this wouldn't work for somebody who has 20 employees, but it might work for somebody with 2,000 or certainly 20,000 employees. I mean, you could see the Walmarts of the world uh, looking at something like this probably in a very different way. And these days, uh, for some types of, of diseases, treatment doesn't even have to be local. You know, at one point there was a lot of talk uh, about uh, taking patients, employees, uh, with non-life-threatening conditions but which needed treatment uh, and, you know, sending them off to India or Thailand for treatment. Uh, it doesn't have to be that drastic. Why can't some people be treated in Boise and others treated in Buffalo? 
and I think if an employer has a, uh, a large enough book of business, uh, employers should be thinking about ways of, in essence, uh, turning the table a bit on insurers in terms of how their money is being spent. Now, especially for in- employers which are self-funding, they are this, you know, and maybe just simply having the, 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 the care, you know, managed by an insurer, uh, I think there are ways to put together their own network. So we'll see if there are entrepreneurial positions putting these deals together or entrepreneurial business people or even, you know, that might come from the large employers themselves. But I think there's an opportunity there. And now that private individuals and businesses get access to cost of care data in a way that only uh-huh. insurance companies could at one point uh-huh. in the past, I would think that that would help drive this process. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What could you do? Um, could you discuss um, how, even though the entities that are providing medical care may be consolidating due to the ACO phenomenon, how the individuals who are providing medical care, that category may be expanding as a result of the Affordable Care Act? Well, you know, I suppose the best example would be an article that I saw in the news within the last oh, month to six weeks, and I think it was the LA Times. Uh, announcing that there had been bills introduced in the California legislature to expand the scope of practice of allied health professionals, uh, nurses, physician assistants, and and others, you know, as 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 access to health care expands, if that's indeed what happens as a result of of Obamacare, uh, and as the current pool of physicians gets older because there's a you know a, a baby boom bubble here, and there's also some level of of disgust or uh, uh, certainly upset among physicians uh, in connection with Obamacare. So as people leave practice, th- th- there is a shortage of physicians, and one of the way uh, one of the ways uh, that the state, for example, in terms of of these bills, uh, and in terms of of uh, simply practice in general, is is attempting to, re- to to solve this problem, as well as they believe a a related cost issue. In other words, is it cheaper to use allied health professionals? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Uh, but but they're looking at expanding the scope of the services that that we'll pick on physician assistants for for a minute it can provide uh, without physician. Uh, supervision. So certainly one way of of stretching the number of of providers is to enable the the scope of what those providers do and enable that to to become greater. Now maybe this is good in some cases and, and maybe it's bad. You know certainly many physicians would say that allied health professionals uh, feel confident concerning their ability to practice in a broader manner, but do they uh, really have the, the competence to do that? Now, I suppose some of it is, you know, protecting your own turf and some of it isn't. But, but certainly, uh, no matter how physicians feel about that, uh, it, it, there, it is an active trend. We could look in California, for example, or across the country, and we could see if you just simply look at the issue of anesthesiologist uh, versus uh, nurse anesthetist, a, a CRNA, a you know, certified registered nurse anesthetist. Uh, many, many states now uh, permit CRNAs to practice without 
physician supervision. In other words, they can be independent practitioners. And I believe that over time, we're going to see the scope of license uh, that, you know, allowing nurse practitioners uh, to, uh, in essence, do many of the things that only a physician can do today. So, you know, this, this leads to a whole number of issues, uh, but that's certainly a trend. Uh, uh, you know, whether you consider it good or bad, I'm not sure, but, but that's the trend. Could you also discuss how um, the competitive edge of physician practices is being impacted by this industry consolidation and expansion of the number of people providing medical yeah. services? Well, you see, to, to the extent that, that traditionally, when I say traditionally, I certainly mean, you know, if we go back 30, 40 years, and I suppose in this instance even further, uh, physicians related to their patients in terms of the business structure as either you know, independent businesses, you know, solo practitioners, or as, as group practitioners, mostly small group practitioners, you know, some larger groups, but mostly small groups. And these physicians, in order to get patients, had to be entrepreneurial. It wasn't simply enough that they were good doctors. You know, not all of them are good doctors, but enough of them are good doctors. But they also had to be good business people. They had to know how to get patients. They had to know how to get referrals. Uh, and they also were in in many specialties were in a position of being able to uh expand uh expand treatment you know many medical advances in this country don't come from research funded by the you know National Institute of Health uh or from pure basic science at the university level they come from tinkering uh at the individual level so Today, and certainly for the past few years, and even more so today and moving forward, uh, we're seeing more and more consolidation. As I mentioned, you know, more physicians are becoming employees of larger groups, larger groups controlled by hospitals in many instances. And there, the incentives are different. The incentive to succeed at practice there is to follow the rules. It's to show up when you're supposed to show up. You know, is to do your cases, do your schedule, go home. It's no longer having to build a practice. And, and for, the, for the most part, my experience with physicians, even within private practice groups, when you tinker with a compensation plan uh, that no longer rewards exceptional performance or no longer uh, is, is production-based, uh, that these are smart learners, <laughs> that they realize that now the way to succeed is to do just what's ex expected of me, keep my you know nose clean and, and my head low, don't make too much eye contact and go home. And, and I think that over the long run, this is going to have a negative impact on innovation in healthcare. Sure, there still will be innovation. It's not going to disappear. But I think you're training physicians to think as employees as opposed to entrepreneurs and and overall i think it's going to have a detrimental effect so they're not going to the, their competition is going to be in the same situation so they're not going to have the incentives to work through the weekend and maybe work with an engineer to develop that new laser treatment or or come up with with some well, uh, procedure device yeah especially when those devices are going to be owned by the employer <laughs> not, not in all cases, but, but if you go to work for a large group, and I look at physician employment agreements all the time, 
you know, y- y- you will see in many instances that the employers say, "Hey, you're a full-time employee. What you, you know, if 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 you come up with a device, you come up with an improvement. It belongs to us." And there's a disincentive there. Now, you know, your average internal medicine guy, your average, you know, cardiologist isn't out there doing, you know, inventing, but your average internal medicine guy or your average cardiologist in private practice is concerned with doing things to increase referrals, uh, to, to build their practice. That, that incentive is going to be different when they're in a system controlled by a hospital, uh, even if they are rewarded for working extra hours uh, or on some production basis, they're not going to be responsible for running their own business. Now, that's what's attracting many of these guys there. I don't have to run my own business. At the same time, the rewards are different, and they believe, I think, the people who are taking these steps is they're reducing the risk. And I don't know whether that's true. In fact, my gut is that it's not true. It's not true because once you become an employee, you have an employment contract that comes to an end or can come to an end. So you have a term, and you got the real term, which is the termination provision. Uh, and so query what happens when you no longer have your own practice. You've worked someplace for three or four years, and you're told, sorry, we can no longer afford to pay you X dollars. We've got to pay you X minus Y. What options do you have? Or what options do you have when it's, sorry, we've decided that we're not making enough money in, you know, pick the specialty. And so we've, in essence, decided we can't renew your contract. Well, now where do you go? You go either to another employer like that, or you go to another city, or I don't know what you do, but you certainly don't have your own practice any longer. So, uh, you so know. there's a lot, a lot yeah. of loss of autonomy that's going to accompany yes. this, this right. shift. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and then Christine, the related issue is, are are these larger systems more fragile or less fragile than independent practices? In other words, there's some basket of risk being an independent practice. What's the overall risk in being associated, say? as an employee with a large group, you know, that, that is part of some hospital's ACL. You're a hospital employee someplace. You know, today, if the hospital down the street fails, there are other hospitals, and doctor in private practice now shifts his or her attention to admitting patients at other hospitals and get staff privileges there. Uh, if that doctor is now an employee of the hospital, and that hospital goes out of business, it simply doesn't go out of business, but it and its whole related organization, its whole related physician organization is now out of business. So is that a more fragile situation or a less fragile situation? You know, that's for, you know, Joe and Sally to decide when they sign up, but I don't particularly think there is tremendous safety in these large numbers. Right. It becomes the, the too big to fail, which was seen as a country is, is a very yeah. uh, hazardous concept. Yeah. So, one, I mean, no one knows, I mean, to, to a degree, no one is an expert in this yet because it is an experiment. And, and the idea is that there will be a patient-centered outcome uh, research institute that will collect fees from self-funded employers and from insurers, and the money will go towards crunching numbers on medical services provided and successive outcome and somehow arrive at a formula or a a concept of uh, efficient delivery of medical care. So it's called, I guess, results-based medicine? Evidence-based medicine. Evidence-based medicine. I could certainly speak on that. And and that is is Mm -hmm. that, you know, what evidence-based medicine is about is 
determining a set uh, course of diagnostic tests and a set course of treatment uh, for patients who present with certain symptoms or who have certain diseases. Uh, certainly from the payment side, insurers and employers, especially employers who are self-funding, uh, would see a tremendous benefit in knowing that tests aren't being duplicated, that less expensive tests are being done before more expensive tests are before more expensive tests are being performed, or certainly that less invasive procedures are being performed before more invasive procedures are formed. In other words, try physical therapy before cracking open somebody's spine. But from the physician, from the physician perspective, one of the pushbacks that you see, and, and I think there's there's validity to it, uh, is that, uh, well, I think some of them would call it cookbook medicine. In other words, that when someone presents with certain symptoms, you always do one, two, three, four, five, and to the extent you're being measured and rewarded or measured and punished in one way or another for not doing one, two, three, four, five, doesn't jive with the fact that uh, people don't all conform to you know what big data says they should conform to. In other words, uh, we're w- w- while we may be biologically very, very similar, we're not exactly all the same. So in some instances, it doesn't make sense to do one, two, three, four, five. It makes sense to do one, two, three, five, five, five. So I believe that that, and this relates to innovation too, is is uh, there is benefit to be had in understanding what treatments are more effective. And I don't think anybody would complain about that. Uh, but uh, a system which requires or which only rewards a certain course of treatments or a certain course of tests may not in the long run be best for an individual patient. And at heart, every patient, you know, you, me, everyone is an individual patient. Uh, so I suppose that that's, that's the only comment I could really, you know, give on that, Christine. Although I could say that, you know, in general, in terms of the whole notion of controlling costs, you know, healthcare costs are down two or three years straight in a row. And that's before Obamacare really, you know, kicks in. So I'm not sure whether there will truly be reductions in costs from the act. But then again, I don't truly know whether the act is about reducing costs or it's about shifting money and control within healthcare. I mean, certainly power is shifted away from physicians to hospitals. Uh, and uh, I don't know in the long run if that's a very good thing or not, but, you know, it's a, it's a grand experiment uh, to sort of um, uh, not quite quote some of the politicians who were, you know, heavily in favor of the act. We just have to see how it turns out. Right. Well, there's, Every everyone in the U.S. is sort of a guinea pig in the experiment, and whether they own a, a medical practice or they're a patient, um, yeah, 
or an advisor to uh, to patients and physicians. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. This has really helped us uh, understand some of these large trends in the industry that this act is uh, is driving and and what we might expect to see from them in the next few years. Well, you're very welcome. Mark, um, this has been a very helpful review of some some important issues. How can uh, listeners get in touch with you to find out more about your practice and the advice you can provide? Well, sure. Uh, First, they can visit my website, which is www.advisorylawgroup.com. Uh, they can reach me via email at Mark Weiss, M-A-R-K-W-E-I-S-S, at advisorylawgroup.com, or they can call me at uh, 310-843-2800. Thank you.